I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear buddhist is not in our stars but in ourselves good luck we care about your world stay tuned my guest is stephen jenkinson He's a cultural activist, author, farmer, and spoken word artist. His books include Money and the Soul's Desire, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and most recently, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. In 2010, he and his wife Natalie started the Orphan Wisdom School. He's also the subject of the National Film Board of Canada's documentary film, Grief Walker, about his experience working with the dying. Stephen also does a Knights of Grief and Mystery tour with Gregory Hoskins and Band, which will begin this fall. Reading this new book, Come of Age, has been a sobering and wondrous experience for me, like cutting through thick layers of culturally generated comfort zone delusion. As this title suggests, we live in a troubled time, and as a culture, maybe it's time to grow up. We've been careening down the road like drunk teenagers in our daddy's car for a long time, and we've got some ominous-looking roads ahead. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. So, come of age, that line, when I think of it, sounds a bit strange. What does coming of age mean? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I didn't call it coming of age, and I'll tell you why. If you go to the New Age book section or the self-help book section of the bookstore, which is most of the bookstore these days, it seems, what you'll find is an enormous number of titles that employ an ING figure of the verb in the title. And this is a very subtle, but I think fairly important thing to observe. In that section, they rely on that formulation of the English language. Why is that? Because these titles, for the most part, are selling the idea that no matter what you do, everything's a process. That means everything can be processed. That means it's not too late. 
That means there's things to be done. And the ING gives you this feeling of, of uh, the future is out ahead and there's a lot of potential there. It's like the difference between describing you as aged and aging. Aging, there's a little wiggle room. But aged means you're there now. So I didn't call it coming of age because I'm not, I'm not deluded or at least I'm not drawn into the collusion that uh, if we just get it right, the Paris Accord will kick in or whatever illusion you're fond of at the moment. So I call it come of age. Okay, so I didn't invent the phrase, obviously. It's been around for a long time. But I employ it with two tones to it. First of all is the hortatory tone, the one that, frankly, is telling you what to do. I mean, I just fess up. That's exactly what it is. In fact, I was in Turkey recently at a gig in Istanbul, and I was for dinner with the, uh, the Turkish publisher and translator of Diewise. And they were telling me, well, we can't translate Diewise into Turkish the way you have it in English because it sounds too bossy. I said, no, but that's a perfect rendering of the title because I didn't call it Dying Wise or Wisely. I call it Die Wise. Yes, I'm telling you what to do. And frankly, I'm imploring you to do it. But there's another tone to it too, to this phrase, come of age. That means it's a little adjectival cluster over and above being a kind of exhortation. And the cluster is describing a certain kind of, I guess you could say it, achievedness. That when we use the phrase, something has come of age. We're describing something about its depth and its reliability, its constancy, its enduring qualities in some fashion. Something that is, particularly in times of turmoil or travail, this thing having come of age is unlikely to betray anything except the betrayals, you could say. So that's why I chose the phrase, come of age. I'm using it in both of those terms, both as a, as a plea for people to, uh, you know, culturally speaking, as you said in your introduction, to come to their senses and not somebody else's senses, finally. And the other thing is to assume the position of deep responsibility, you know, while there's still relative health to do so and not wait till some magic 11th hour because, you know, the kids, the kids are paying attention and they're watching and they're wondering if anything's worth it anymore and if you wait to the 11th hour of your allotment to act as if it is you basically are i would say leaving them high and dry while you explore all your lifestyle options so that's a that's a long-winded way of of giving you a feel for what i had in mind with the title Mm, that wasn't long at all. (laughs) i i greatly appreciated that Uh and touching on the new age book section you say and you've been saying that we better learn elderhood. Right. But this book, you say, is not a training manual for elders. Mm-hmm. So what is this book, and why did you write it? Mm-hmm. Well, I gave you a little feel for it in the first answer as to why I wrote it. Uh-huh. The thing that probably prompted me came from my time in the death trade, wherein I saw that even though I thought I was there to help people die, it turned out I was the only one who thought that's why I was there. Because generally speaking, the dying people in question had no interest in being helped to die. Why? Because they didn't understand themselves to be dying people in the first place. What they wanted help with is how not to die. 
as they died. And I can tell you this with no hesitation, that most paid professionals colluded with that idea that you didn't have to die until you were ready to die. You didn't have to understand yourself as a dying person until you were ready to understand yourself in those terms. And I will never forget a woman, a social worker, coming in to talk to a woman who had cancer, and she said to her, now look, you're not dying of cancer. You're living with cancer. And of course, that's a very user-friendly mauling of the English language, isn't it? It's a very customer-friendly lie. And why is it a lie? Because it traffics in the notion that you have to choose between a self-understanding as a living person or as a dying person. Apparently, you can't be both at the same time. So this is, of course, ludicrous and morally reprehensible to try to sell this to dying people as a, as a legitimate lifestyle option. So I take the same parallel and apply it to the question of elderhood and ask something in the book, basically a question, the question that governs the whole apparatus comes down to this. Your understanding of elderhood probably is wrapped up with your understanding of what constitutes wisdom and from whence it comes. And generally speaking, we have a kind of bumper sticker take on this thing, which is more life experience equals more wisdom. It's very fascinating that nobody says more life experience equals more trauma. I've never heard that formulation show up. So the idea is without examining it, that the older you are, the wiser you are. Look, man, how about this then? If that's true, then let's look around as you and I sit here and have this conversation now and make the following demographic observation in your country and in mine. And it's clear that we are in the midst of an aging population. People are living longer. And if the previous formulation is true, then as the population grows ever older, we clearly will be, already are, and will continue to be the wisest, most enduring, most sustainable and sustaining population that the world has ever seen. That's what it should mean. You know, in terms of just cumulative mass, we do have more life experience than anyone's ever accumulated, generationally speaking. But of course, the reason I'm saying this is because you look around and there's nothing, I don't think, in what you see where you are or I see where I am that's persuasive for five seconds that we're a sustaining and sustainable arrangement and that we are becoming ever wiser as the time, as the days click past and our demonstrable unwillingness to live differently continues to announce itself. The inescapable conclusion is an aging population is a train wreck in slow motion at least the way it is in the North American context. So all of that then is to raise the following very troubling question. Where is elderhood to come from if it can't come from aging? Because it's not coming from aging. And a lot of alternative types will respond with the notion that it will come from younger people. I'll give you an example. I was in Oaxaca, just finishing that book, actually, just the final edits and... Uh, I was in a bar, and uh, so there's a lot of expats in this bar, and there's a lot of mezcal, of course, and a lot of pseudo-romantic behaviors uh, in, in full display. And a woman, probably no more than 30, 32 years old, comes up to me, and she says, so what do you do? And, you know, 
I haven't been in the game for a long time, right? So I actually thought she was asking me. So like a fool, I answered her, and I said to her, well, actually, I'm working on this book about elderhood. And, and I do not exaggerate her tone of voice, but this is what she said to me when I said that's what I was doing. She said, why? Just like that. In other words, what would possess you to waste your time on a demonstrably bankrupt proposition like elderhood? That's what she said. I mean, we had been speaking for all of five seconds, and that's the reactivity I got from her. So I said to her, well, uh, you know, I figure something, something has happened to aging, and to elders, that's why. And she interrupted me, actually, and she waved her hand in front of my face. She said, oh, look, she said, I know what happened. Wisdom, abandon people your age. We've got it now. So does that sound wise to you? <laughs> I I'm not saying it's not understandable. I'm just saying it's not a precondition for wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last point on this, on this uh, question you've asked me. If it's not experience that generates wisdom, and if wisdom is the precondition for elderhood, then how are we to come by elderhood in an increasingly aging and experience-ridden population? Maybe it's this. We re-examine from whence come elders. And my re-examination took 400 pages, the book that you are referring to. And somewhere in there, I came up with the following formulation. That every generation would appear to me to be a generation not by virtue of its clothes, its musical choices, its lifestyle options, its uh, polygamous pursuits, it, whatever, whatever the going concern is today. You could say that generations become generations, not as a demographic fact, but as a consequence of their willingness to undertake what I've come to call spirit work. And the spirit work in question is not self-improvement, not self-development, not the retreat centers, not the life coaching. The spirit work I'm referring to is dictated by the times, the very subtitle of the book that I formulated, you know, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. We are in such a time. I think you and I both agree on that. And if this is true, then the, the, the plea that I'm making and the case that I'm trying to make is that the spirit work of the generations that are alive today define the generations by virtue of their willingness to undertake what the times are asking of those generations and what they are imposing upon them, and what they are burdening them with. And the willingness to take up this work is what makes the generations the generations. And the refusal, the unwillingness, or the, the, the unknowingness about that kind of spirit work has the following consequence, that subsequent generations inherit the undone, unpracticed, unimagined spirit work of their predecessors. See? And I believe that's the condition that North America is in and has been in for some considerable period of time. As we look back and try to feel in some way proud of our ancestral connections as kind of dominant culture white folks, you find with increasing regularity that younger people are willing to go to anyone else's ancestral tradition before they go to their own. 
they're willing to 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 adopt to um, well, let's just call it adopt to be neutral about it. Anyone else's spirit practice, you know, worship practices, uh, wisdom traditions, uh, ways of dress, and so on, and, and address uh, before they ever go anywhere near the one that they actually come from. The only one that answers to the word my ancestors. So why is that? Seems to me the reason is because the general feeling prevailing today is there is nothing legitimate in any immediate ancestry available to people from the dominant culture. The sense of being discredited and ashamed, frankly, by the unassumed spirit work of their predecessors seems to be having the consequence of, among other things, cultural appropriation of all indigenous lifeways all across the planet, right? Ayahuasca, when you can get it, peyote, when you can't, you understand what I'm saying, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and meanwhile, one's own uh, DNA-generated ancestors languish in, in abject, you know, sort of ghettos of shame and neglect and degradation as we claim to undertake this kind of personal development spirit work instead of life-devoted spirit work. Well, that's a long answer, but that gives you a feel for what, what motivated me to do it. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we connect with that spirit work with our own ancestors? And what, who are our ancestors? What, what was the spirit work that, that we can connect with? Okay, so the, the most important thing I can do by way of answering your question is to, is to implore you and, and, and the question itself to not only have patience, but to completely abandon the notion that you can generalize across generations to talk about this thing. The very nature of the spirit work I'm talking about means that it's very specific to a place and to a time. And this is why you can't inherit cultural wisdom. You mean from other cultures? No, from your own. Oh, okay. No. No, I mean, you, you and I both know that the, the going concept, the going conceit now, is that cultural continuity is the thing that indigenous cultures have going for them. I mean... Mm-hmm. Frankly, given missionary work and, and globalization, nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we, we, those of us who don't imagine ourselves having access to such a thing, really deeply fantasize about its existence in other places, you know, more, more temperate climates, you know, you don't understand what I'm saying, all that kind of thing. And it's the nature of this spirit work, it's the nature of wisdom itself that you can't generalize from it. And so... You don't hear me with the five-point plan, with the 12 steps, with the you know, six sages and the seven stages and all of that malarkey that's out there in all those bookstores we were talking about earlier. But if there were a question of how does one begin, then my answer is already there. You begin by finding a way to be willing to inhabit the fundamental cultural poverty that you are heir to. And without that step, everything else will be fantasy and opportunism and a cowardly unwillingness to be informed by the deeply unwelcome realities of the present time. And here's the consequence for failing to do so in the near future. I was talking earlier about an unwillingness to uh, you know, identify oneself with one's predecessors two or three generations ago. 
Guess who you and I will become if we fail yet again to undertake this work and have it be informed by the poverty that I'm talking about. We will be another generation not worth claiming, not worth being from. And the poverty that we were trying to solve our way out of will actually deepen in the coming generations as a consequence of our addiction to solutions and our unwillingness to take up the adult-scaled work of beginning with the hard things, with the unpromising things, with the deeply tragic and sadness-making things. So it sounds like the work that you're talking about is the direct grieving of all that perhaps we've lost or that we've never had. It's more the second one. Uh-huh. Never had. In England, where I've, I've worked a lot in the last little while, they have a phrase, and they're quite fond of it. They use this phrase, rewilding. It's not just in England, but it's certainly there. Mm-hmm. Or, or back to the land. Mm-hmm. And then when you investigate the recent biography of the people who are using the phrase, it becomes clear that there's no back to go back to. They've never been there. There's no wild to rewild. Okay? So, so the, these things are all hor- horrifically nostalgic. And it's important to remember that the etymology of the word nostalgia tells you that the word actually means the return of pain. That's the meaning of the word. So all acts of nostalgia are a secret longing that produces more pain than it solves by in- inadvertently or unwittingly bringing in the least welcomed, the least considered the least grieved over things, as you said earlier. Um, you said direct, directly grieving, which is a really good formulation. And the thing I would add to it is to say active grieving mm-hmm. as well as direct grieving. In other words, to reconsider grieving, like I wrote about in the Diewise book, at great detail about this issue, and try to distinguish grieving from feeling bad. You know, feeling bad is, of course, part of the repertoire of one's feeling state. And grief is not a feeling. The nature of feelings are that they come and go. And, and thank God they come and go. So they're here today, gone tomorrow, very much like the weather. Indistinguishable from the weather, actually. Where I am right now, it's about 30 degrees Celsius. It's hotter than the Dickens. And, of course, welcome to climate change. And uh, we got less and less water around, and we're farming here, and it's very tricky. But for all of that, I remember February quite well. And I think you're, you're in a, a place that has a wicked February, too, probably. Mm-hmm. So we understand that, that the drastic changes in the climate are reflected in our drastic kind of emotional repertoire as it comes and it goes. The amazing thing about grief is that once you learn it, once you learn how to do it, once you befriend its consequences in your life and you begin to be informed by it and you take upon yourself its tuition, then you discover, like every other thing you've learned, it does not pass away, that its endurance actually deepens over time, and it becomes part of what's necessary for you, not what afflicted you. In that sense, grief is an amazingly astute willingness to be utterly present, available, and responsible. So it's like the ground 
upon which we stand and walk. You could even go a little deeper and imagine it this way. So we have the word archetype, which the Jungians have claimed. We have anarchy, same word is in there. We have the archer, we have the, the architectural form known as the arch. All of these words I've just said employ the same four or five letter formulation. It's a Greek word, and its meaning, if you don't investigate it very deeply, you understand it to be that architectural shape. But how does, how does the word archetype participate in that? Arcane, for example, means outdated in some fashion. So we, we do have this sense of the passing of time and the things that participate in this archaic quality have been around for an awful long time. That's because the real meaning of A-R-C-H is it's what underlies the foundation. It is, if you want to use the phrase, the foundation of the foundation. And this is exactly where we get our phrase in English to understand, which we use to mean comprehend. But if you think of it spatially, it literally means to occupy the position below and to grant you the capacity to be ever more deeply informed as a result of your willingness to have everything rest upon your willingness to stand under what is to be learned. And the, the opposite, etymologically, is the verb to speculate. It comes from a Latin term which means to view at a great distance. So you could say those are existentially oppositional. The willingness to speculate, to stay far away from what you're trying to understand versus the willingness to stand under what you propose to understand. So that's grief, as you, as you formulated pretty well initially there. Grief is a willingness to stand under and not to get out from under the burden that your times entrust you with. If you're just joining us, my guest is Stephen Jenkinson. He's the author of this book we've been talking about, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. It sounds like it's also related to that old notion of taking the journey into and through the underworld and, and not just skipping through it, but paying one's dues and doing one's time down there. Yes, as long as the, the formulation does not include the sense of inevitably leaving there and inevitably returning either unscathed or even improved by virtue of your little sojourn down there. Uh -huh. If you leave that out, then yes, I agree with completely in the way that you've characterized it. You know, there's a word, we have this word in English, truth. It's horribly overused. Etymologically, it's not investigated at all. I'm going to do it now. So there's many, many Greek stories. Many of us learned them in school in some fashion. And uh, most of them include some version of the following vignette. You will, as a consequence of life, just having its way with you, you will be driven to the very cliff edge of what you understand and what you're capable of and what you prefer, and you will discover that you're propelled over that edge in some fashion involuntarily, and you will engage in a kind of descent. And this is the first part of the word catastrophe. It's in Greek, it's K-A-T-A. -A. That's referring to the descent. It means you're going down, whether personally or increasingly these days, culturally. It's descent. And it doesn't bode well, it wouldn't appear, 
And at some point in this descent, it segues into some other movement that's about entry instead of just free fall. That's the stories that you get from the old Greeks, this notion that the descent will eventually grant you some kind of entry that was unavailable if you stayed closer to the surface of things and if the catastrophe didn't have its way with you. So now you've entered into this underworld, as you talked about it. And while you're there, they say, first of all, it wasn't your idea to get there. So it's deeply, um, you have deep ambivalence about your time there. You're not thinking, well, this is interesting. Far from it, probably. There's a lot of travail and there's a lot of terror, a lot of things. It's one of the reasons why you would never have gone voluntarily. They say then that there's a river that runs through that underworld. And the story that I'm thinking of rotates around those two little details. One, that you're not there of your own accord. And as a consequence of that, there seems to be an enormous amount of labor just in being there. And the consequence of the labor is that you work up a considerable thirst simply by not being where you're accustomed to be. Now, there's the river, and of course the natural instinct is to slack your thirst with a drink from the river, and that's where the warning of the story comes in, because they say, whatever you do, don't drink from the river. And if you ask yourself, why not? The answer is in the Greek name for the river itself, which is lethos or lethe, and that's the root word for our English words lethargic and lethal, both of which, once upon a time, referred to things that were deathly or death-dealing or death-resembling. So, Aletheia, the name of the river, contains the root word for death in it. So then you immediately come to the conclusion that if you drink the river water, that you'll die. But the story says that's not true at all. That's not what happens. What happens is, as a result of drinking the river water, you will forget the reasons that you were down there in the first place. You will forget the things you saw you were down there. You will forget being down there at all. And when you reacquire your, quote, normal life, you will, you know, sort of be captivated by the twin indignities of the utter disappearance of what was entrusted to you and a vague sense of being haunted that there's a kind of something you can't get access to, but you don't know why. So all of this is to say that the, the wonder and the majesty of the Greek story is that it's asking you to up your capacity for being human by finding a way to expose yourself to what seems to undo your humanity. The challenge to your humanity is the way by which it grows, in other words. And I think that's the kind of time that we're in now between all of the digital this and the vague virtual that and the globalizing this and so on, the consequence of all these things, among others, is a sense that most individuals have that they have no agency, that, they, that there's nothing anybody personally can do to turn back the considerable tide of dehumanizing and the, kind of the war on the specific and the local and the particular. So my way of talking about this with you now is to reignite the notion, or maybe to ignite the notion at least, that this is exactly the time when we have to be able to proceed minus any promise that by taking up the work, we will taste the fruits of our labor. We will, entaste, we will taste the improvement. We will live long enough to see the better world that we're dreaming of. 
I don't think that's true. I think the fix is in so desperately and so deeply that the, the elders in training among us are willing to proceed without any promise that they will see anything come from the work that they try to undertake. And that's exactly the way I'm proceeding myself. So you're talking about being present with the pain and the trauma of this life that we find ourselves directly in today, here and now, without the uh, Western cultural salve of hope. Exactly. That's a... Uh, that's an unpalatable prescription you're offering this culture. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't have tens of thousands of people coming to what I do. Uh -huh. If I were to tell you right now, I got the secret. I got the answer. I know how to fix this. I've spent my time in the trenches. I got it figured out. I'm not your guru. Now follow me. If I did that and I wrote that shit down, man, you'd have to take a number be able to get into the stuff that I do. But as it is, the crowds are always in the very low hundreds. And, and the, the name of the show that we have with my band, what's it called? Is it called Have a Good Time? <laughs> is it called Enjoy Yourself While You Still Can? It's called Nights of Grief and Mystery. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, watching some of the clips of, yeah. of those performances, mm -hmm. I was struck by this deep soulfulness that you could just, that I could feel, even watching a video, I could just feel it enveloping the, the entire atmosphere of the venue and the people in it. Mm. So when I see that and when I hear that and, I'm, and I read what you're saying, mm. I get that. It, mm. It's not unpalatable. Yes, at the beginning, it takes a little, it's like you have to spend some time in it to become familiar with that that sense of discomfort and and that there isn't necessarily going to be any form of hope available on the other side. I think of it as, as um, you know, in, in the early stages of the show, by the way, thanks so much for the characterizations and your observation about what we're trying to do there, because I recognize our labor in your description there. Um, what we're trying to do, among other things, is give people a sense of the cadence of sorrow, the vocabulary, the syntax of sorrow. And sorrow is different from sadness. Sadness tends to be a real personal thing derived from your personal experiences and so forth. But this kind of sorrows and mysterious sorrows that we're talking about in the show and that we, that we evoke, they're somehow broader and deeper and more, I don't know, trustworthy than anything personal ever could be. This is something that we find, that we recognize something mutual about our humanity in these kinds of things. Like that spirit work I was talking about earlier, I think this is how we become recognizable to each other. And it's not in our person, the details of our biography. You know, it's more our willingness to see in, an, in a fellow human being what a, a kind of unsolved, mystery-laden sorrow actually looks like. And I think it's indistinguishable from the capacity to be an elder, frankly. Mm -hmm. So I think the band is, they're all kind of elders in training, you could say. And believe it or not, I mean, we've been lucky enough together, Gregory and I have done maybe 
75 or 80 shows over the last two or three years. But the band that's coming to the States in the fall, we've been together for, I think we've played together six times or seven times. That's not even time to remember each other's first and middle names even. And yet, every night before we go out, we sit there in the green room, if there is a green room, and we look at each other, and it usually falls to me to say it, but you can see it in everybody's face. We have a sense, first of all, that we're on to something, which is a wonderful and marvelous feeling to have, that you're lucky enough to feel you're in the presence of something that you're capable of, that might be amongst the best things you've ever done. There's that, and there's this sense of almost insane good fortune that you lived long enough to in two or three minutes' time to walk out onto a stage and to invoke the understanding that we are in times that ask amazing things of us and very unwelcome things of us. And if we're willing not to blink, then the rest of the evening becomes an incantation of what a real human being in a troubled time could possibly look like and sound like and feel like and ultimately be. And if we're lucky and if we're good, we kind of melt the distinction between the audience and the performers such that we all become, you could say, ritualists and we're engaged in some deep ceremonial work that has melted the idea that there's people who are watching and there's people who are in charge. And we've reacquainted ourselves with a much older tradition that's older than theater that says that there is no audience and there is no script. And many a thing hangs in the balance, which is exactly what I say close to the beginning. And it's amazing that that tone is there and it, and it survives the little, the little kind of infomercials that are made about it when uh, these filmmakers you know, try to craft a two or three minute piece. I should tell you, by the way, a little advance notice that on... I think it's July 14 or 15, a documentary film about our tour last fall in the States is coming out. It's called Lost Nation Road, which beautifully ends as we walk out onto the stage. So it's all about the preliminaries of how we've you know, pulled the show together. And I must tell you that I've been on the receiving end of the documentary treatment several times and never was that thrilled with the outcome. This one, though, I'm, I'm quite proud to be associated with it. So... So that's coming real soon. I think it'll be on YouTube on the 16th or something like that. Well, I definitely felt all the things you're talking about very deeply just from watching those short clips. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that work. And it sounds like what's happening with you and the band and the audience is that you're all connecting on that deep subterranean level at that foundational level below the foundation. The archaic level. Yes. That's correct. It's a, you know, I don't like the phrase anymore, but it's an archetypal encounter. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it encounters us at a level we're so unaccustomed to, and yet is in a sense constantly there asking for our attention. That's, that's where we're trying to go. And imagine doing that for two and a half hours without an intermission, with employing a lot of music and storytelling, and, and not losing anyone. It sounds it's a high wire act, I must tell you. Well, the way I, I worded it, while I was reading this book, I was writing pages and pages of stuff. And, and mm-hmm. what I wrote down was this is like a revivalist evocation of the spirit, of, yeah, of what you would call eldering or elderhood. 
That's right. You got it, man. We we I've often said we're going to church. <laughs> we're going to church tonight. <laughs> Which is a wonderful culmination. Well, not a culmination at this point, but you knew this when you were young. You had a sense that this was the direction you wanted to take in your life. You just didn't know what how would, or, or why or how deep it could go. You're right. Yeah, you you read that story about uh, in that chapter called The Fourth Temptation, when I'm trying to get in the priesthood of something or other. Oh, yeah, I love that but story. They won't <laughs> let me in because I've never been to church. So right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I had some sense, not that I wanted to be, you know, the boss or be in charge, but, but how, to, how to find a way of life that is fundamentally devotional, but at the same time not religious in an overt sense of the term. That's what I was trying to find though I didn't know it at the time, you know, in my 20s. I mean, you don't know much about what you're trying to do. And that was 40 years ago, me trying to figure that stuff out. And certainly the Knights of Grief and Mystery is the church I couldn't find. And you talk about how there's no hope at the end of this. We're not necessarily, and and very possibly or perhaps probably, we're not going to find a way out of this mess. And yet my own experience of diving into this and really sitting in the midst of this, the pain, the trauma, Mm. that if you're really willing to fully be there, at some point, perhaps after a few months of really, really steeping in it, or perhaps a few years, a strange, mysterious kind of joy starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. Because you're on the other side of hope, that's why. See, you're neither hopeful nor hopeless. And because of that, you're capable of this, this kind of joy that doesn't blink when the hard stuff comes. Or in the face of one's inevitable ending. There's that. There's that too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I will never forget, I used to get asked all the time in interviews, God, I've done a lot of them by now. The standard question was, so you've seen a lot of death? Yes, I have. And this must mean that you've seen your own death in there somewhere. Yes, I have. And that must mean that you're good with it then because you've seen it. And that's the part I always objected to, though I couldn't really figure out in the early days why I had such a strong reaction against the formulation. But as I get a little bit older and spent time in the work, it suddenly hit me that I have no obligation to be happy that I'm dying when I'm dying. No obligation whatsoever. It was then that it hit me that it wasn't until I glimpsed my death, the real concrete bodily understanding of that. It wasn't until then that I had a capacity to be alive. What I was doing before then, I wouldn't even want to characterize it. But I would say in some fundamental way, I was not alive. I was only provisionally alive, conditionally alive. When things were working out and everything was great, and da, 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 then I was happy. Then I was content, I suppose. But now, now that I've glimpsed, as you call it, the inevitability of my surrender, I get to the time between now and then is the time where everything I've ever imagined to be so and to be possible beckons me and makes demands of me. And far from retiring or taking time off or whatever, 
the exact opposite is happening. You're supposed to start to take it easy, apparently, when you get older, and I'm going to be 65 in a month or so, and, uh, and I've got a rock and roll band instead. <laughs> That's bizarre. And you're going on the road. I know. <laughs> it's too wacky, man. Yeah. I can't figure it out myself, but uh, I lasted long enough to be able to get to do it, and I'm, I'm luckier than I can stand sometimes. So it sounds like you have a tremendous desire, or maybe not desire, but but you're you're really aching to live at this point. <laughs> I think I think the word I would use to describe what you've really generously observed there is I have a longing. Yes. For life, it's such a gorgeous and underused word in contemporary English. The verb to long after something. It's we confuse it with desire, but you. You corrected yourself. You started, you used the word desire and you changed it because I think intuitively you knew it wasn't the desire for more. That's not what you're hearing from me. Mm -hmm. Like if this is all I get and I don't live long enough to get out on tour in the fall, I mean, I'll be, it'll be tragic for me personally, but there's no ripoff there. There's no betrayal. There's no being stolen from because I got all of this and I got to talk to you about it and all of these matters. That's extraordinary. So I have, instead of, instead of the desire for more, I have a longing for what I'm standing in the midst of. Yes. So peculiar. <laughs> yes. And you have a metaphor of elderhood being like standing in the midst of a flowing river. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good one, though. It's a good one to really feel into because there, there's a kind of a paradoxical element of it, of, of being in this flowing river and experiencing both being in a spot in the river and the dynamic of this flowing river of experience, of being. For the sake of the people who haven't heard, should I just do it for a minute or two to describe the idea? Oh, please. Okay. <laughs> so the, this is actually a kind of meditation about time. And we've often used the phrase time is a river or time is liquid and has movement and current and this kind of thing. So the idea works, and it's pretty familiar to most of us. So this is just a version of imagining or, or picturing. So here it goes. So actually, as I'm telling you this, I'm looking at the river in front of my house that is the river on the cover of Diewise. It's exactly the river. I'm looking at it. I'm not making it up. So it's not an inner river. It's not a virtual river. And it's not a New Age river, okay? It's a real river. So if we go out there, just up to your knees, no deeper. It's all you need. And you can feel the current just on your legs, right? And so what I ask people to do to come to an understanding of this is to turn until they're facing the direction that the river is headed to. And now we change the notion and say, this is the river of time we're talking about. So rather than use the word direction, what direction are you facing? I'm going to use the word time. And I'm going to say, if you've rotated until you're facing the same place that the river is headed to, what time are you facing? And to ask the question abstractly, it usually goes like this. What direction does the river of time go towards? And most people will say the future, that the river of time goes to the future, to the not yet. And everything is moving from the already has been through the happening now to the yet to be. That's what we count on, and that's what hope is predicated on. Now, in actual fact, you can observe that this is not so. 
And it goes like this. If you go back and stay inside the river and just observe what's going past you as the current goes by. And there's some leaves, right, some branches, other sort of flotsam that's in the river. And that stuff is heading somewhere. And you're facing the direction it's headed to. So this is all stuff that has been heading somewhere. What do we call that? What do we call the place where everything that's ever been is? And the answer is the past. That's what we call it. Everything that's ever been is in the past. And that's where the river of time is headed to, to the past. And that's where you're headed to when you die, and me, and everybody listening. And there's no such thing as the future. You can't point to it. You can't inhabit it. You can imagine it. But that's all you can do. The truth of the matter is that all of life comes towards us, sweeps past us, and heads towards the past, and in due course, will bring us there. And that's what ancestry is, and that's what history is. And it means it's not gone, because very mysteriously the past is out in front of you, waiting for you to join it. And you also say it's also what's here right now. Well, it is, because it's not gone. It's not gone. It's it's, how should I put this? It is, um, you could say that what is to be is the imperative version of the way it is. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by the past. What the present is, is the past slowed down just long enough to become recognizable to those of us who are still alive. And this really hit me when I was working in the death trade because so many, so many people died sedated and tranquilized and antidepressed and so on. And their symptoms were under control. And, and all of the horror stories that people were imagining for themselves physically never came to pass. And yet they have all this psychic medication in them, and they die slack-jawed and drooling instead of writhing. And why, what were they being treated for? And my answer is they were being treated for the possibility of disappearing without a trace. That's what the antidepressants and the sedation was for, to make it impossible to be legitimately concerned about your culture's willingness to proceed without you, with no reference to you, for everybody to quote-unquote get on with their lives, and so forth. I never heard anybody talk about this when I was working in the death trade all those years. So you're talking about people getting to experience the fear and anxiety and the emptiness of, of that. Of contemporary dying. Yes. Yes. Of the contemporary envisioning of dying. Yes. And the end of their existence. The kind of ancestor-free self-help zone that's quote-unquote waiting for them. That's correct. Now, I'm not saying it is literally waiting for them, but I am saying if you live your life as if dying is what happens to you instead of something that you actually undertake and learn about and do. And if you come to your dying time as something that's being done to you as a, as a victim of it rather than a practitioner of it, and if you come to your dying as something that has ambushed you instead of something that's entrusted to you, be not surprised then that the grievance and the grudge and the belligerence 
actually increase as you come closer to it. And all of this life experience that was supposed to turn it into a happy little new agey transition, that's what betrays you completely. And that's what turns you on yourself, turns you against your body, turns you against the passage of time, and turns you against the people who are going to live longer than you are. That doesn't make for much of an ancestry for the younger people watching. It's the strangest thing. They granted me a visa and fully documented me in order to perform cognitive dissonance on the general public. <laughs> uh, welcome, friends. It should change everything. If Diane doesn't change everything, welcome to the catastrophe. So, that's what I understand Knights of Grief and Mystery to be. Cognitive dissonance for everyone. I'm gonna take a little walk. This thing that started as an experiment through them fields. Settled into something deep and and trustworthy. Carry me gently. The other thing that looms so large suddenly, there's a mournful little event that happens in the life of a young boy. It's so confusing. Farming demon. No guidebook. Dark, dark wood. No explanation. Can't come with me. And it sure doesn't look like love. Oh, I wish you could. I wish. We're modern. God knows we are. We're modern. And we're homeless. And we are confused by freedom. From what I can tell, these are strange days. You're bringing to the people a story that they don't know they long for. We're born to a dangerous time. Consider that affliction or consider that assignment. That's Stephen Jenkinson from his Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour. And if you're just joining us, Stephen Jenkinson is the author of this book we've been talking about, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I would love for you to talk about the responsibility that we have towards our heirs in this way? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give it a try. First of all, I should say, I don't even like the formulation what young people are owed, frankly. I think it's a deeply disagreeable formulation that establishes young people in this kind of seat of authority and judgment with their arms folded, waiting to be satisfied by people twice and three times their age. It's a very ignoble vision. So rather, I would say that I've tried to govern the writing of the come-of-age book and all the talking I've been doing about this subject for the last half dozen years or so based on me coming up with a simple little vision that goes like this. I say, if you live long enough, and increasingly you will, then somebody one-half or one-third your age will eventually come up your driveway and they'll knock on your door. In other words, they will appear in your life somehow, usually unannounced. And they'll have two questions for you. And they're very simple questions. And the answers thereby have to be simple. And the first one 
goes something like this. When you were my age, did you know what was happening? That's the big one. That's a real big one. Of course, this is being asked right now. There's an awful lot of young people who are walking around with the implacable desire to hear legions of old people say that nobody knew what was happening. I know that's a strange thing to want, but I'll tell you why I think young people are wanting old people to say they didn't know. Because it's something like the Nuremberg trials, isn't it? That if nobody knew, then the idea of culpability and personal responsibility for the way things are becomes a kind of free-floating kind of matter of opinion thing. And there's no real indictment. Because who could bear the thought that we did know what was happening, but we continued to buy our SUVs anyhow? Who can bear it? Okay. So that's the question. When you were my age, did you know what was happening? And really, authentically, the only answer seems to be something like this. When I was your age, even then, the technology was such that anybody who really wanted to know what was happening could have known. Even then, it is certainly true today. But here's the thing, though. Not everybody in those days wanted to know what was happening. And so not everybody did. And from what I can tell, it's kind of still that way. So here comes the second question. And the second question will come no matter how you answered the first. The second question is, so what did you do? And anybody over about 35 years old listening to this right now is in the position of waiting to be asked those questions and of living out the answer, the only answer that they'll really authentically have to give. And that's what the stakes are. To my mind, that's what's at stake. Literally the answer we have to give to the younger people among us who are desperately, I think, looking for a couple of older people that they could finally be wrong about. And counterintuitively, that's a strange formulation. Who walks around looking for somebody to be wrong about? Well, if your deepest conviction is that anybody over about 30 or 35 years old is morally compromised, morally culpable, and deeply incapable of being respected, you can't live that. I mean, you might feel legitimized in your anger and your antipathy and your misanthropy, you might feel that all of that. But for, for all of your sense of being right, being right that way will kill you in the longer term. There's no question about it. So at some level, I think younger people are trying to find a couple of older people that they could be wrong about in this respect and to have their deeply understandable prejudices about older generations challenged by one or two examples of people who've proceeded otherwise. Of course, that's exactly the appeal and the plea that I'm making with the book and all the appearances and the Knights of Grief and Mystery and all of that is for older people, for anybody to situate themselves in their life such that they could be the older person that younger people 
could be wrong about it. You tell a story that sounds very much like that of a young man who contacted you wanting to come visit you. Right. Could you tell that story and get to the question that he finally asked you at the end? Sure. Yeah, I remember it very clearly. So we have a website and all this kind of thing, and, and, you know, I'm not that proud of that. Everybody told me at the time, it's the only way to, quote, be in touch, you know. (laughs) I'm still not in touch, but anyway, i got a website now. And a lot of people are in touch, though, and it seems that the notion of a website seduces a lot of people into the idea that whoever has got the website is kind of sitting there in an armchair by the front door waiting for them to appear. And that, you know, whoever's got the website is kind of permanently available and on call, kind of like a 7-Eleven, you know. When you got the munchies, he's there kind of thing. So we get a lot of unsolicited contacts of people imagining this and, and suggesting that they'll just drop by. But this is a working farm, you know, and we can't have that. And I'm not encouraging it now, and I'm not encouraging it in the book either. So I'm saying, look, man, probably like you, we're busy, and we've got a lot of responsibilities around here to the lives that we're answerable to, and they don't include tours. <laughs> because the thing that we've put together here is not a petting zoo for the disconsolate soul of urban people, even though they imagine that all of the, quote, natural world is there for their restitution, but it's not. Anyway, so in the midst of all of this kind of thing, we got a, you know, yet another one who somebody, and the guy said, you know, I'm around the corner, and I thought I'd just drop by. And uh, the people who work in the office, they just said, well, it doesn't work that way, and we really couldn't, we really couldn't see you. And uh, he was fairly insistent, I guess, sent a few others over the next day or two. Finally, they let me know that there's a kind of persistent young man out there somewhere who says he's kind of around the corner. And uh, I said, okay, how many times has he written? Oh, three or four times. Has he stopped demanding and, and treating it like it's his right? And is he starting to be respectful in the way he's, he's writing to you? And they said, actually, yes. I said, okay, so here's what we do then. Tell him that I'll find a way to make one hour. And in that one hour, he'll have to hit the ground running, whatever he's come with and for, He's going to have to mobilize and materialize that as best as he can, and it's not going to elastic out to two or three hours or anything of the kind. And if that's good enough, then offer him that one hour, and I'll do my best to be available. And long story short, the hour came, and I appeared, and the young man who was kind of younger in his eyes than I thought he might be, after an hour of talking about farming, where I really had the feeling, I don't think he came here to talk about farming. I mean, I'm not that brilliant a farmer, and you can get way more off the Internet than you could ever get from me. So it's basically two minutes left, and I said as much to him. And then he started to tell me about himself, really, for the first time. And in there, he told me the following story, that he was a Jewish kid. He was aware that the Israeli government had the program where they repatriate kids from the diaspora and set them up with a kind of Israeli experience, complete with kibbutz and various other things. So he took them up on it. This was only a couple years ago. And he was over there, and things were going pretty well. And he got sort of swept up into the national spirit. And as he put it, you know, for the first time in his life, he felt like he was part of something bigger than himself. And it's pretty heady stuff. So somewhere in there, he joins the Army because everybody his age was in the Army. And so he joined it, too. 
And in the early going, it was, you know, exciting, and he had a sense of doing something important and all the rest. And because he's pretty young, everybody around him is pretty young. The guys in charge are pretty young. And his timing was either really good or really unfortunate, depending how you imagine it. But just at the point at which his basic training was done, there was another uprising on the West Bank. And so his unit got mobilized. And before he even knew it, he was from the classroom and from basic training in the back of a, some personnel carrier driving down these narrow streets to contend with street rioting. And it happened very quickly, he said, and everybody's yelling to get out and stones are raining down and, you know, there's fires and smoke and all he can see basically is kids and women, which is really unnerving. And they're throwing stuff and everybody's got their finger on the trigger and they've got, they got protocols about firing, of course, and all of that. And he doesn't know what happened first. Was it a bang? But anyway, long story short, he fired. And as he told me, he said, I don't know if I hit anyone. I don't think I did. But it was completely unnerving that he had squeezed the trigger in the, dire- in the general direction of a fellow human being and that this is what his training had given him the capacity to do. And it all went horribly otherwise, let's just say. And eventually, the, the, whoever's in charge, who was like 23, yelled for everybody to get back in the thing, and they got out of there, and da 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 And he had something that amounts to a kind of PTSD, kind of nervous breakdown of sorts, and he was honorably discharged, and, and within a very short period of time, he finds himself back in New England, where he started all this thing. And there's a long pause after he tells that story. And that's the first time he looked at me, at the end of the story. And then he says to me, you know why I came here? He said, I figured it out now. I just wanted to find out if you were for real. That's all he said. And then he walked down the driveway and got in his car and after buying all the books and everything and drove off. And I don't know what he decided, if he decided, if he answered that question for himself. I didn't try to answer it. But maybe in the things that I'm doing, the stuff that I'm writing, the shows that I'm doing, the interviews I'm giving, somewhere in there, I suppose, I'm trying to provide an answer for people who have that concern. You know, as they, they Google grief, right, and my name comes up, or however they come by paying attention in a transient way to these things that I've been doing. And I'm trying to imagine real human beings out there, you know, reading this stuff and listening. And I'm not imagining an audience, and I'm not imagining a demographic, and I'm not imagining metric groups. I'm talking to you now as if this is a privilege, not a drag, not something I'm entitled to, but a privilege to mysteriously and accidentally end up in the middle of a fellow human being's life for a few minutes as they kind of accidentally stumble across this interview. And I occupy some place in their concerns or their, their contemplations for a few minutes. And that's an enormous privilege, and it's not to be taken for granted. And I suppose uh, each and every time out, although I'm not thinking about that young man in particular, but I am trying to proceed as if that's what's at stake, younger people trying to figure out if anybody older than them is for real. This sounds very much like what you talk about as people conjuring elders. Mm. Younger people seeking them out, in other words. Not just seeking them, but actually conjuring them. Because there, there's some kind of mysterious alchemical stuff going on in there. Correct. 
Well, it's counterintuitive, man. You said the word conjuring, I said the word seeking, but I believe we're talking about the same thing. I think seeking is the mechanics of the conjuring that you're describing. The search is not a rewarding thing. You know, that's why they say, you know, it's not the destination, it's getting there, if you get there. And then more often than not, it doesn't matter if you get there, and then more often than not, you don't get there. You get somewhere else instead. So some part of them seems to be tuned almost involuntarily towards a kind of seeking after something that's just authentic. I mean, the kid called it for real, whatever you imagine it, something that stands the test of consideration that's not designed to seduce and to please and to sell and to reassure, but something that that was achieved at enormous, you know, consequence. And there it is. You know, that's basically, that's all I got, is to say, in my brief but intense sojourn on this bright blue spinning world of ours, this is what I come up with. I'm not making any particular claims about it, but I'm compelled by it. And that's enough for me to try to put pen to paper and see if I can make sense of what I've been allowed to see over these years. But in doing that, I'm not generalizing, you know, across anybody else's life experience and saying, well, it worked for me, because it's very questionable whether anything's worked for me. But I don't have the secret, and I don't have the formula. But I have the enormous good fortune that fellow human beings come to what I do and sit and listen to it for a while. I can't explain that. I don't know why that happens. I just know that it means that I have an enormously important part to play to earn the right to occupy someone's evening. That's the responsibility I have. You also started a school, which you call the Orphan Wisdom School. Mm -hmm. Talk about that title and what that has to do with all that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the name of the school... And it's a name for the entire enterprise that I've given myself to, of which the school is a significant part. And the reason I, I chose it, although I suppose just as much it chose me, it told me this is what it wanted to be called, came down to this. You know, I've, I just came back from Istanbul. Before that, I was all over the UK, and I was in Ireland and so on. Before that, I was in Switzerland, and before that, and so on and so on. That's just this year. So if a guy's traveling like this, He's got to make up his mind pretty early on this point. Does he think he has something to say to everybody on the planet and that what he's talking about is more or less instantly translatable and should be to everywhere else on the planet that he goes? Or is he willing to testify to the best of his abilities to these small observations about a particular place in time that he was included in and then simply leave it to the people who are listening to decide whether or not they want to translate anything that they've heard into their life. And I've chosen the second one. So I was in all of these places just this year, and it occurred to me again that as a North American, that my principal responsibility is to recognize that everything that I come up with is a consequence of this kind of spontaneous, mostly involuntary mass migration that spawned this thing called North America. And you and I both know what the official story is of why that happened and how it happened. All these people seeking 
freedom, huh? you know, blah, blah, blah. And your country has much more of a national mythology about this than mine does. But it's there. We all understand that this is something that we imagine ourselves to be enormously lucky because this is the dream that every other culture had but couldn't materialize, and we did it, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Any examination of the history of the time makes it clear that none of that's true. It was never true. It's a Disneyland version, and it's a reprehensible understanding of what happened. And ask any indigenous person on the continent whether these were freedom-loving people who washed up on their shore, just for starters. Mm -hmm. So there it is, and I'm contending with the deeply challenging possibility that I'm from one of the youngest countries on earth, Canada. And it's, it's an involuntary country besides. I mean, we have no national mythology that binds us. Nobody knows what a Canadian is, not even inside this country. And nobody's particularly, quote, proud of all its associations. We don't claim that we invented very much, you know, and so we're just on the outside looking in of this nation-state thing. Okay, so you're wondering, what's this got to do with the question I just asked you? The answer is this. If I'm trying to do something that I'm imagining might be useful to a few people occasionally, I've got to understand what its limits are, first and foremost. And its limits are represented by the first word of the two words I used to describe it, orphan, by which I mean that the North America that I know about is an orphan. When I ask people, I say orphan, you think what? Most people will say no parents. I have to say there's no such thing as no parents. If you got conceived, you had parents. So really what orphan means is you can't get to your parents from here. You can't get to them directly. That the old story is not quite available to you. There's something that's happened in between then and now. And you're doing your best, at least on your good days, to live out whatever the hell it was that happened. But you don't have the intact family thing that other people have. Well, that's North Americans. There's no question about it. When people came across the waters on the so-called Middle Passage, they left at least as much behind as what they found. And one of the things they left behind is that cultural continuity that gives them a sense of who they are and why they are and what their place in the world is and their own sense of ancestry and what's to become of them after they die, all of which I saw when I worked in the death trade. The absence of all of that stuff is basically what gave me my job security in those years. So orphan is a very good description, not only of the cultural circumstance that gave me my birth and my life and my understandings, but also what I'm trying to do is not get out beyond the limitations of orphanhood by talking about universalism and globalize this and that. So there's an acknowledgement of the limits, orphan. And then the second part of the formulation, wisdom, indicates in a kind of redemptive fashion my understanding that being a cultural orphan does not box me out from the possibilities of after tremendous labors and a willingness to know, you know, the particular cultural poverties of my times and place, a certain kind of wisdom that might be the particular allotment of the youngest, you know, nations and not superiority. When I say the word wisdom, I don't mean exceptional. I simply mean to be 
lucky enough and responsible enough to be a repository for a certain kind of understanding that might not be available in more well-established places. So if you put all that back together, you have something like the redemptive possibility of limit. That's the enterprise, and that's why I call it that. And that seems to be a huge part of what eldering is. Well, yes. I think so, too. Elderhood is crafted at the edge of what's possible, at the edge of what's known, at the edge of certainty and reassurance, at the edge of feeling of capacity and competence. And I mean, when all of that is basically in wreckage, then the capacity to occupy the elder function can be available. But that's what it is. An elder is not a person or a personality type. It's a function. And that's why the office of elder is actually a transient one and can pass from one person to another in the space of a week, let's say, and properly so. You don't get to occupy this kind of elder position for life. You see, there's a lot of other things you have to do, but in times of particular cultural distress and so on, then everything you've been lucky enough to see and to be bamboozled by and to be wrecked by has to become the tutor for younger people who are demanding solutions for the problems that they themselves didn't create, which is circumstances we have before us now. And that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier about conjuring elders, that it is, it's a conjuring of, of the function that it's like a spirit that enters a worthy vessel in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it, it may occur in some way like this. By virtue of being looked at that way in that moment, the self-examination is intense and immediate and instantaneous. And the desire to have lived a life as if this moment would occur retroactively is extremely strong. And that's in there. And that is a conjuring power that your life mysteriously becomes available to you in hindsight at the same time that you're trying to be, let's just call it adequate in an exceptionally challenging moment or time or era or epoch, like the Anthropocene. Well, it's been a wonderful pleasure to talk with you. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I'm glad you have. I felt particularly unleashed for some reason. I just came in from doing a lot of work out in the fields and walked right to the telephone. So it turns out that farming can really prepare you for a decent conversation with a fellow human being. So I'm glad it did. I'm glad we got a chance to talk, and I, I really appreciate the questions you asked. Well, again, thank you so much for all of your time. I deeply appreciate your work, your books, and your performances. <laughs> thank you, sir. We'll see you on the road. Yes. Enjoy the road and be well. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And that was Stephen Jenkinson. He's a cultural activist, author, farmer, and spoken word artist. His books include Money and the Soul's Desire, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and most recently, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. He's the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School. He was also the subject of the National Film Board of Canada's documentary film, Grief Walker, about his experience working with the dying. Stephen's website is orphanwisdom.com. it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening if you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com slash wgdr and if you haven't contributed to our summer pledge drive please go to wgdr.org and make a generous donation right now and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other <laughs>